Leadership beyond a definition. The boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide. Conversations about growth. Leadership Unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. I am your host, Virginia Hardy, and joining me today is Dr. Sterling Freeman. Dr. Sterling Freeman is a leadership coach, organizational and cultural change agent, facilitator, minister, counselor, and public speaker. All of his work is grounded in an equity lens and motivated by a desire to achieve justice. Sterling's more than 25 years of experience have equipped him with the knowledge and skills in idea development, project management, personal development, and goal clarification, and formal and extemporaneous speaking. Having been in Christian ministry since 1996, Sterling also brings a pastoral orientation to his work and is inclined toward deep listening, holding empathy, and meeting people where they are. Dr. Freeman has worked with leaders whose diversity span all lines of identity and across multiple sectors in the nonprofit world. Speaking and lecture opportunities take him across the country and abroad. Along with Kathleen Krabs, Sterling is a co-founder and principal with Counterpart Consulting LLC and an associate with Open Source Leadership Strategies. Through both entities, he and his colleagues work with client partners to help them apply an explicit racial equity lens to their work. Dr. Freeman is a consultant with Auburn Seminary in New York, where he works with leaders of moral courage on multiple justice-centered projects. Sterling is the lead founder of Breathe, a whole black experience, which makes space for black people to freely discuss their racialized experiences, grapple with the impact of those experiences, and affirm themselves and one another. Dr. Sterling is the founder of the Wisdom and the Work podcast, which focuses on the topic of racial justice. He holds a Master of Divinity from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a BA in Economics from Davidson College, Certificates in Business Strategy and Economics from the London School of Economics, and a Doctor of Ministry degree in Global Leadership from the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. Sterling serves on the board of the African American Heritage House at Chautauqua Institution in New York, the vision of which is to contribute to a more vibrant Chautauqua community and to enrich the Chautauqua community through the inclusion of African American history, culture, and the contributions of African Americans. He also serves on the board of Neighborhood Seminary, whose mission is to seamlessly integrate theological and spiritual education for head, heart, and hands so that lay people can fully participate in God's mission in the world. Sterling lives in Durham with his wife, Michelle, and their daughter, Joya. Welcome, Sterling. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I am looking forward to it. Thank you, Sterling, for joining us today and for sharing some of your thoughts and your ideas and practices and, and philosophy related to leadership and, and what that really means from the a large scope. You have many roles and wear many hats within who you are in your sphere. Leadership coach, change agent, facilitator, counselor, public speaker, pastor, lots of different hats that you have. When you think about all of that, um, how, do you, how do you define who you are as a leader, just generally speaking? Well, thank you, Dr. Hardy. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think I'm just all over the place, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to give you a clear definition of sort of who I am. I, I think there's some things, though, that resonate with me across all of those different roles, right? And so one thing about being a leader, and I think this might sound sort of sort of trite perhaps, but really it's really about learning to be human. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's just, um, I think that the business of leadership in any context uh, is about relationships. Uh, it is about having the uh, capacity to be able to, um, you know, allow and make room for folks to be their best selves while I am trying to be my best self. And so it has something to do with relationship and community 
it has something to do with um, having the ability to see and hear people. So I, I think there's this thing about really being human. And so being human, it means being uh, not perfect. Mm-hmm. It means being imperfect. It means being authentic. It means knowing where my energy is and where my energy isn't, where my gifts are and where, where they are not. So I think it's, I think being human and I think under that sort of uh, umbrella, there's something about uh, humility mm-hmm. uh, and that, that I think is required. There's something about kind of being a little bit self-effacing as well mm-hmm. and being able to uh, be comfortable with my flaws and so on and so forth. I think at the end of the day, being, uh, for me, being an effective leader is just making sure that I am a person where all of these sort of diverse people with whom I interact, that I'm actually easy to be around and and folks can be their authentic selves. Uh, And that's a portal towards being their best selves. Yeah, and you know, uh, that's a lot of self-awareness too, right? And, and knowing where, uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are and yes. and to, to own the, the humility part of it so that uh, people and the vulnerability part of that so that other people can feel comfortable themselves being themselves. So uh, that's not an easy feat, my friend. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And Dr. Hart, I think one last thing I would add uh-huh. is to be, to be that, to that humility piece, it's also to be confident, and I mean confident. Uh, I have a colleague, Gita Gulati Parti, who talks mm-hmm. about you know Gita, yes. who talks about confident humility, and I think that at the same time, being humble to also just be comfortable knowing I know, knowing that I don't know at all, but just being comfortable in knowing what I know and what my gifts are, and mm-hmm. using those things to be my best self. Yeah, that's, that's good. All right, so so Dr. Freeman here. So through all these different hats and, and um, identities and roles that you have, uh, you your work is still through the lens of um, equity, social justice, um, mm-hmm. which is extremely important um, in, in who you are, I, I believe, as a person. So talk to us a little bit about how you bring that to focus in the various roles you you have? Absolutely, that's a great question, Dr. Hardy. And you know, I think it's first important for me to really quickly say what it kind of brings me to this work uh-huh. of, of, of particularly our, of racial equity and racial justice, right? Uh, really four things really quickly. One, uh, being a black man in America, right? Just, just knowing uh, and having been introduced to a form of equity work many years ago, having the language to articulate my experiences and to be comfortable with the fact that the experience I was having as a black man and I have as a black man, I'm not making up in my head. That's how racism works, right? Mm-hmm. To convince me, to convince me that what's happening to me, uh, and you know this well, that, that that I'm making it up, right? Yeah. So that's one thing, just kind of being able to articulate my experience. The other thing is knowing that uh, identity is complex, right? Mm-hmm. Not not only having a racial, I have a racialized self. But I also have a gendered self and a, a, a class self and an able-bodied self. Mm-hmm. And in all of those other ways, other than race, I'm, I, I hold a lot of privilege. So those intersections are important. They, they are sobering to me as it relates to the work that I need to do. The third thing is being a parent, right? Being a parent of a, <laughs> of a, of a black child who is now a black woman in this world and who at an early age, uh, I had to uh, as my grandmother would say, be on my P's and Q's as a parent mm-hmm. and help her understand that some of the things that she was hearing at school were about race and racism and helping her understand as a little girl that she uh, was not making that up. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I think fourth is, Dr. Hardy, you know I have ministry background, is my theology, which my theological proclivities are what you call womanist. Yes. And womanist theology is 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 a is a take and a, a, a it is a product of Alice Walker's mm-hmm. womanish definition that she introduced right. to us in the late seventies, uh-huh. and there are brilliant black women who created a branch of theology, womanism, womanist theology, and my theology, uh, which is about community, 
about wholeness, about loving oneself regardless, and listen to this, leaving no one behind. And that sort of really inclusive, justice-oriented definition uh, of theology is something that holds me in this work. So all of those things bring me to this work, Dr. Hardy, and so I'm compelled uh, and, and, and to do this, uh, do this racial justice work. Wow. So, so talk to me then, um, Dr. Freeman here. Talk to me about the conversations. I don't, I don't need the, the, you know, the details of the conversations you had with your daughter, who was now a beautiful young lady. When she was younger, how do you help her to, to understand what was happening to her and do it in a way that was going to be a strength for her yes. as, she grew, yes. as she was growing into womanhood? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Hardy. So one of the, one of the uh, most accessible examples I have is that the age of like seven and eight years old, she would come home from school and say something like, Daddy, they were talking about hair today and what's good hair and what's bad hair. You know that conversation. Oh, right? oh yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and so, so I had to, have, you know, kind of get down on one knee and look her in, uh-huh. in the eyes and help her understand that that was a conversation about what was beautiful and what was good and what was not as, as society perceived it, perceives it and how that was about this. Um, and so, you know, we talk about the uh, beauty, you know, of her own hair mm-hmm. and her own skin. And uh, we would also show her all kinds of images of beauty and so on and so forth. And I think just kind of modeling those things when I would hear those kind of, she would come home with those kind of uh, stories, uh, trying to model, trying to ask her about what she felt about herself and to try to help her understand how she was a beautiful, wonderful human being and unique and made and there was no one else like her. So having those kinds of conversations and just really keeping an ear to the ground, Dr. Hardy, is what uh, what I did and what her mother did. Yeah. And, um, and and as you might know, still. Yes. It, 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 you know, she's a healthy individual and still we know that the images and the pressures and the stereotypes and really the to, to just be really, really clear about it, the normalization of whiteness mm-hmm. and, and the standards uh, or white standards of beauty and, other, and, the, and the normalization of whiteness in other areas is something that is a battle every day. So how do we bring all of this to the let's t- bring that to the workplace right? or it could be any organization or any mm-hmm. environment. But how do we help people understand that? Uh, Sterling, this this the whole this whole normalization of whiteness and the acceptance of whiteness, and that mm. it is all good and all knowing, right? This you know you brought in the word privilege. You know, yes, there is a lot of it, and then that privilege brings about the oppression. So how do we yeah. help leaders in um, to understand that this is real? Yes, yeah, great question, Dr. Hardy. I appreciate that. So I, you know, I, I think one of the things is is that. Well, you have to have workplaces and organizations that have leadership that, first of all, just as a baseline, who are ready to just go there in terms of these mm-hmm. conversations. And and Dr. Hardy, just frankly, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a, there, there's no magic to that. Yeah. Somehow, some way, leaders who do have the power in those organizations to step up and say, listen, we are going to do this work you just need them to step up and do it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, from there, assuming that's in place, you know this work, Dr. Hardy. It's methodical. We have to we have to begin to give people tools to talk about these conversations. So, what does that mean? We have to have tools in terms of norms and practices of how we're going to be together uh, in these conversations and how we're going to treat one another. We have to have shared language so that we can know what we're talking about. Because every time somebody says race, we know in this country they don't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to make sure that we reckon with our shared history, how we got here. Yeah. And then we have to have models for people to see differently, different lenses to invite people to try on different ways of seeing and help people understand 
it does not mean that you are mean, evil, or bad because you didn't <laughs> see it. All it means is, is you just didn't see it. Right. And so now our, our invitation is, and our encouragement is, once you do get the lens and you see it, we ask that you keep seeing and yes. be responsible for that, uh -huh. right? And, and, and we can get into this, but that, that's different in terms of that, that, that work. Uh, if we're talking about sort of racial equity work, it's different in terms of the work for white folks and for people of color. If we're talking about gender, the work is different for men and for women, so on and so forth. But I, I think, I think to, you, to kind of wrap up to your question, I think it's about being, um, I think it's about being methodical. I think it's about being willing to pivot because yep. uh, this is iterative work. There is no linear mm -hmm. process to this. And I think it's about being um, understanding that it's not going to be perfect, but using the tools and the resources you have to pull you through those, through those, tough, those tough times. And lastly, organizations have to invest in this work. And I'm not just talking about the money to bring mm -hmm. on, you know, right. consultant partner, which is, but although that's important, but I mean the time, yeah. uh, the emotional commitment and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I want to un unpack quite a bit there for, from you. So, uh, so I'm going to try to take it piece by piece. So you mentioned that um, the work is different depending on what from which lens you come. So you know, uh, from a racial lens or gender lens, and in within those identities, if you're a male versus a female, and black or Latina or white or what have you. So let's unpack the, that part of it right uh yeah. of, of of what's the, what are the differences and how do we how is there intentionality because there needs to be intentionality and i do i think that intentionality has to be on all parts regardless of race or gender etc but that intentionality that needs to come from white leaders as we do the work um from males as we do the work absolutely yeah no you, you you're hitting an important point and if we sort of kind of step up on the balcony and talk about equity writ large, just across all different kinds of identity, I think sort of a fundamental um, truth that I'm trying to lift up here is that there's different work for the privileged mm -hmm. group to do uh, and uh, versus those who are on the margin, right? And so when we talk about this different work, we often talk about working in affinity groups so that is for whoever's the privileged identity where we're talking about race and white colleagues or whether we're talking about doing gender work and men uh, like me who are privileged in that area that work is for the privileged group to learn together and to not not expend that energy on those who are on the margin because uh -huh. you know you know you me, we don't need that burden right, right. but to learn together to challenge one another and to hold one another accountable for sharing power. That's the work of the privileged group. For those who have been made most marginalized by oppression, that is, you know, women, if we're doing gender, that's, you know, black and brown folks, if we're doing race, you know, uh, disabled uh, folks, if we're doing, uh, working around ableism. Yep. For those groups, the affinity group, the affinity, affinity group work is about supporting one another, mutual support, uh, affirming one another, uh, visioning together, and also being able to negotiate the differences between them. So it's, 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 it's not the same work across these lines of privileged and those who are on the margin, but it's, it's different work in order to build the capacity to actually work together. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense, right? That um, and each one of and each person, the privileged uh, as well as the marginalized, each have some work to do. And if each person or persons are doing their doing their part, then we can move a little bit easier together and, and hand in hand, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it also helps. I mean, when when we do uh, when we do those concentrated have those concentrated uh, times where we're doing affinity group work and we're focusing on the things that we need to do based on where we find ourselves located in any system, whether on the privileged side or on the marginalized side, it helps when we get together because 
you know, there's some things that we learn and we see things differently. It helps us care and empathize with one another better and those kinds of things. So it helps the, it helps the collective work when we also do intentional work uh, in our respective affinity groups. So all leaders are not there. Right. 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 <laughs> they're just right. they're not there. I think in order for an organization to be able to move, no matter how big or how small, the leader has to be on board and not just from a talk perspective, but from a, a true commitment to action perspective. You do a lot of work in your consulting role, helping organizations and communities hopefully get there. But it's hard. How do we move this this DE&I work forward? And how do we move it forward so that it's not on the backs of those marginalized individuals? Yes, yes, absolutely important question, Dr. Hardy. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, I think when we talk about getting there, my question is that, that I raise is that when we talk about getting there, do we have people who are just in denial that that sort of structural inequity is a thing at all? Or do we have people who are aware of that and kind of just don't know where to start. So how do we get them to the start? Because that's two different things, right? That first group, you know, when when you're when there's when there's denial or or not seeing it or or and there is no proclivity towards wanting to do this work. Again, as I said at the beginning, Dr. Hardy, I don't know. We we've been doing my colleagues and I, <laughs> Kathleen Krabs, Gita Gulati Parti and I, we've been doing this work, you know, for 20 years yeah. plus. And, and I don't know how to get someone uh, and leaders who are just in denial or who are ignoring uh, the reality of structural inequity, structural racism, structural sexism, so on and so forth. What I will say is that we do need enough folks who are similarly situated as those folks who are in denial. We need those folks to step up and challenge their colleagues mm-hmm. to say, hey, this is a real thing, right? To your yeah. point of not putting that back, putting that on the backs of the folks who are feeling this oppression. Now, for those folks who are just kind of, you know, who are who are aware and who are interested, but are just don't know what to do, that's something to work with. And I think it goes back to what we said about, you know, getting a plan. Mm-hmm. And, and methodically introducing concepts, holding space for capacity building, for people to be curious and confused. All of that is good. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, to raise questions and so on and so forth. And to really um, help people understand that this is long-term iterative work, to take off the pressure of getting it right, to take mm-hmm. off the pressure of you know, shooting for some destiny that is made up. But to understand, Dr. Hardy, that this is human relations work and we're in it for life. Mm -hmm. For life. That's exactly right. So I think we have to reframe what we're talking about. We're talking about making an investment for the duration. We're talking about um, specifically trying to move our particular organization, whoever that organization is, and that there is no template for it. Mm-hmm. And so, and we're, we're talking about being a learning organization, that this is a process of continuously learning um, and understanding that it's going to be a journey. I think kind of getting people, because that pushes back up against dominant culture, because what dominant culture says is that there is a right way that there is a timeline for mm-hmm. it yep. and that there is a perfect way to do it. Yep. And all we, we would say all of those things are dominant culture. Mm-hmm. We need to push back and say that that's, that's false. Yeah. Yeah. There, there isn't, there is no, there is no destination, right? It is completely Absolutely. a journey. So um, I'm sure you've experienced this. I know I have in regards to as a leader, toning things down or being careful so that as mm. I, and I've been told by, well-meaning colleagues not to be seen as the angry black woman. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. I got a lot to say about that. <laughs> 
You know, uh, my, my late husband used to say there would be days, there were times when he, would, he wouldn't shave, and I'd sweetheart, it's time for you to shave the hair. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to walk in today. I want them to think I'm an angry black man coming in here. Yes, indeed. Right? Yes, indeed. Embrace that. Yes, yes. indeed. So, so yeah. I, I know you've experienced that as well. Uh, what is that all about? And, how, and, and, and let's talk through that a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 uh, it's, 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 if, you know, I like to talk like young people because I think I'm cool. So me too. I will say this to, to, to keep it to keep it a buck. That means tell the truth to keep it a buck. Um, you know, this this goes back, right? Uh -huh. this, this angry, this angry black man and angry black woman. This goes back to all of the uh, kind of you know white supremacist stereotypes of black people. Uh, you know, back to the days of enslavement, right? That we're scary. Yeah. Um, yes. And, 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 and made out to be uh, monsters, uh -huh. you know, and so it goes all the way back to that. And whether people hold that consciously or, conscious or unconsciously today, it doesn't matter. The impact is the same. But here's the deal, um, Dr. Hardy, is that when people say don't be angry, it's really interesting to me because if there's anybody that has reason <laughs> to be angry, in this country is black people correct and and more though more even than me are black women yeah so if anybody so so to 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 use anger as some kind of pejorative mm -hmm. angry black woman is some kind of pejorative kind of trope um it really if you really think about it it really doesn't even make sense because who has a right to be angrier so that's that's the first thing if we tell the truth about our history Mm -hmm. how we got here and what our experience is. That's number one. The other thing I'll say is this whole thing about angry is I notice oftentimes that white leaders, particularly white men, get to be angry and that's translated as, oh, assertive Correct. and taking charge. Correct. But as soon as you wrap that anger in black fit, black flesh is dangerous yes. and destructive. Uh -huh. And so the, the hypocrisy of that, right, the, the, the just contradiction and the hypocrisy of that is something that I think a lot of times in the master narrative we don't deal with. Uh, the, la the last thing I'll say, I think, <laughs> is that the business of just kind of controlling emotions at all, because we know there are some other pejorative terms that have been assigned to women, mm -hmm. period. Right. Not only black women, but women, period, when you're angry, you know, some, some, some less than flattering terms yes. have been That's used right. to describe you. Uh -huh. And my thing is, is I don't, I think it's wrong headed and it does not even comport with the human experience to ask someone to control their emotions yeah. because emotions are not behaviors, mm -hmm. feelings, feelings and emotions just come. And we were endowed with those things as human beings. So if you're telling me to control my emotions or not feel something, then you're telling me not to be human. Correct. And so I think it's, uh, to just be. Uh, blunt about it, I think it's ludicrous mm -hmm. when we uh, these labels about angry black man and angry black woman for all of the reasons that I just outlined and I for one am about embracing my anger because mm -hmm. though I'm angry often it does not mean I'm destructive or dangerous. Or dangerous. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I agree with you. I've um, I've owned that and said, you know what, if that's if that's what people want to see and how they want to describe me, have at it. Mm -hmm. Have at it. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do what I think is right. And I'm going to speak it in a way that that's needs right. to be heard. And because, right. you know, uh, another guest mentioned at one point that sometimes you as a woman and she happens to be a very short woman that you have to speak a little louder and speak more often so that people hear you, mm -hmm. right? And and that's just, that's that's a reality. And so you know. Well, we, yeah. And here's the other piece. Mm -hmm. it, it it also should not be your burden, Dr. Hardy. Yeah. It should not be that sister's burden, right? Because there should be enough, uh, you know, white mm -hmm. uh, colleagues. Mm -hmm. And there should be enough black men like me who yes. stand up and say, "Didn't y'all hear?" This sister speaking. Yes. I think you. I think you talked over her, right? Yes. You know, there, there there needs to be enough of that, because uh, that should not be your essential burden, uh, just to be human and be heard. Yeah, yeah, agree. Uh, all right, I'm like, I, I could go on and on about that part. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely, I know you can. <laughs> yeah, because not often will people people with that privilege in whatever the setting is, uh, are not not readily available, uh, willing to, 
to do that speaking up because they don't want to lose their own favor. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, it's, it's a lot about comfort, right? Mm-hmm. It's about the comfort, the comfort of the privilege. Yeah. You know, we talk about white comfort in race work or, mm-hmm. or male male comfort in gender work, right? And and the reality is is that um, these you know folks who talk about being allies and af- actually I'll just go ahead and put this in: if you're an ally, you don't have to say it, right? <laughs> so that's that's another thing. <laughs> but you know, talking about being allies. We're talking about literally putting yourself in between those who are being harmed and the system itself. Yes, that's right. <laughs> literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. You know, there was uh, a guy, uh, unfortunately, who was murdered in his grandmother's backyard about three or four years ago out in California. It was a big national story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have heard it. Yep. Uh, but was murdered in his grandmother's backyard. And his brother, of course, his little brother took it hard and, diff- and it was difficult for him. And he was having a hard time. So there was a, a video um, where this young man went in and stormed the city council meeting mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the town there in California and stood up on the table and dis- disrupted the whole meeting. And I saw all of these police officers mm-hmm. that were headed to him. And then all of these white colleagues of his encircled him and put their bodies in between him and the police. And Dr. Hardy, I've never seen the police yeah. stop in their tracks. Yes. Ever. I, 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 I couldn't believe that. The way in which they were going after, listen to me, this black body, yeah. but when the white body showed up, they stopped. They stopped. That's real. Yes. And so if you want to, you know, this talk of being ally and whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, Use your bodies mm-hmm. figuratively, figuratively and literally. Yes. To put between those who are being harmed and this system that harms them. Yeah, and and which is a, a test of true leadership of any kind, regardless of position. As that's a true test of leadership, in my opinion. So yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm just visualizing that because I don't remember seeing the that particular piece in the news, but I'm visualizing that, so I'm having a moment to to get back on track. Yeah. So, <laughs> sure. yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy. <laughs> that one is. So, there's often a belief that a commitment to diversity, particularly when it comes to diversifying the employment, right, the employees, uh, your staff, and all of that, that that conflicts with a commitment to excellence. So, from the standpoint mm-hmm. of saying, you know, well, you know. We're, we're, we're going for whoever is the best or the right one and not necessarily for, you know, a, to meet a quota. I've been told that on several occasions, particularly as it relates to admitting students. Um, what kind of leadership efforts should be made to encourage that? One, to, to, to dispel this notion of you, that one excludes the other. Yeah, right. yeah, this is this, this is a heavy one here too. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, so well, well, the first thing is is I think number one, who defines excellence? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Like, yeah. where does that come from? Particularly, I mean, if we're talking about in the academy, what is the academy built upon yeah. in terms of values and ways of knowing and so on and so forth? Well, we know it's built on white dominant culture. Mm-hmm. So you know, we know that 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 that's just a that's just a historical fact. Who got who? Who got to decide what it is that we need to learn? What it is that 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 what excellence is, and so on and so forth. But then, if you add the layer of the legacy and the history of folks being excluded, excluded from a system that first of all was not built for them, if we're talking about race in this country, mm-hmm. and then still thriving, still striving to actually succeed in that system. You know, I would say it's a wonder that we all we have all of the, quote, successful black and brown folks that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So so when we talk about we talk about diversifying somehow precludes excellence, that would be the first question that I would ask. The second thing I would say is that, well, the way you've been doing it, you don't have all excellent people. <laughs> so nobody is nobody is talking about the white people who are mediocre. Right. I mean, let's just let's just be let's just keep it real. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody is saying that. I I was just having a conversation earlier. Uh, I mean, yesterday somebody was talking about, you know, these rules that they're making. I think it's an NFL. They're doubling down now because of all the trouble in the NFL. Right. You know, hiring black coaches Uh and making sure there's spots for them and all of that kind of stuff. And someone was saying, well, 
hey, here they go, you know, making exceptions for, you know, black, um, you know, uh-huh. people again. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute now. They've been making exceptions the whole time. <laughs> I said, I said, white men are like the poster children for affirmative action. We yes, just indeed. didn't call it that. Right. We just didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. The, it was only when it was given a name and it was geared towards women and people of color, you know, then it started you know, as this, you know, up, it was affirmative action was created, but we actually were practicing affirmative action before then. Yes, indeed. So, uh-huh. so my thing is, is this, 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 uh, the, I guess the third thing I will say is that when you're talking about diversity and talking and, and suggesting that it precludes excellence, um, usually when organizations are diversifying, trust me, they are taking the best of the best. Right. You That's know, right. Brown folks, trust yep. me. Uh huh. You know, so it is not <laughs> like you know, it's not like they're going and getting someone with no skills, no background, and so on and so forth. But then the larger question is, is that um, you know, is the question about diversi- diversifying at all? Because diversity is a floor. That's why an inclusion is the next level, but that's why we live in the equity space. Mm-hmm. My question is, is that your diversity efforts are not going to thrive if you're not equity conscious and trying to create an equity culture. It won't work. Talk more about that, please. Well, I, I mean, I think the thing is, is that when we're talking about, let's distinguish diversity, inclusion, and equity. Yes. Diversity is about, diversity is about rep- representation. Mm-hmm. That's bottom line. That's the floor. That's about having people in the room. Okay, so now you got you have people in the room. You have the diversity. You have you know white folks, black and brown folks, you know Latin, Latino, Latina, Latinx folks, Asian folks, so on and so forth. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good. But then you could have people in the room and they still have no power, no agency, no voice, no no nothing. So if you're talking about purely diversity, that does not it does not change the conditions under which people are having to work and try mm-hmm. to succeed. Yes. The next level is inclusion. Well, inclusion is good because you move from not only representation, but you move to uh, participation. So now that you got inclusion, not only do you have all of these folks I just named in the room, but now you are exchanging ideas, mm-hmm. you're hearing people's voices. That's good stuff too, but that's not enough because you can still be in the room and you can still have a voice and you can still be bumping up against the barriers that have been embedded in this country and in this context from the very beginning in very intentional ways. So that does not, that in no way shifts power and agency. So that's why we play in the equity space. Equity not only talks about representation, it not only talks about participation, but equity talks about power and Mm -hmm. how is power operated. So you have all these people in the room, you have all these people participating, but not only are they in the room and participating, but now you got black and brown folks and Latinx folks and, and Asian folks who actually have agency and who have power to make decisions, to drive agendas, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And listen, to create a different kind of culture so that it can meet the needs, not only of, of, of those for whom the culture was built, but also meet the need for everybody so everybody can have the opportunity to thrive. That's equity. That's where we're, we're talking about systems level change. Yeah. And, and so we argue, my colleagues and I keep saying we, uh-huh. you know, open source and counterpart, we argue that equity will actually make diversity and inclusion better mm-hmm. because it will create the conditions under which it really means something that I'm in the room. It will create the conditions under which my voice really means something in this uh, in this space, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So I so I I would even ref- I think that this pitting diversity against excellence, I think that actually that that's a, that argument is a specious argument from the start. Gotcha. Great. Because of those things I just outlined. Yes, exactly. All right, thank you. And I'm glad you made the di- the distinctions among the three words because uh, people use them interchangeably, that's but they're right, really uh, not. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. So as we're doing this work and as leaders are doing this work and or engaging it in some way, shape, form, or fashion, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, there this the implications of agreeing to disagree, that there's no that there's no magic wand that just or, or magic to how this happens. And that actually dissonance and discomfort are beautiful things within this work. What are the implications of, of agreeing to disagree? 
Yeah, that's that's such a um, that's such a powerful question, and I think I think that agreeing to disagree is uh, so you can be you can experience the dissonance and the questions and the challenges, uh, but that does not necessarily mean that's going to lead to agreeing to disagree. Mm-hmm. I think agreeing to disagree um, can often be, and I'm not saying that this is always intentional, but I think that can often be a portal to work avoidance because what we know is, is that oftentimes the agreeing to disagree does not necessarily lead to systems change. So if nothing changes, then we're going to still have the asymmetrical kind of power dynamics between those who are privileged, privileged from the system as it is and those who are feeling the harm of the system as it is. So if we just agree to disagree about it, then there's no change. We're in the same situation that we're in. Um, now, I understand sometimes in, 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 in particular you know, situations when that you have to navigate systems as they are while you're also trying to change them. Right. So I understand that people are not going to agree on everything. I get that. But as kind of a final answer, um, I think that long term, I think that that could be a portal towards work avoidance. I think I think as you're working towards change, sure, uh, there's some things that people are not just not going to see eye to eye on. But I think that that has to be held up. Whatever the decision is, it has to be held up against the values. What orients you? What are your values? And if you have truly taken on equity values, then you know at the end of the day, ultimately, just agreeing to disagree and keep things as they are is not an option. Wow. Thank you for that one. I had a a whole different path I was down with that question and you took me down a completely different one. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, let, but let me, let me, but let me uh-huh. say this, Dr. Hardy. I like that it. Agreeing to, that agreeing to disagree, again, I want to emphasize, I understand that, that, that there are intermittent points mm-hmm. and maybe specific circumstances where that just needs to be, be the case if, if, you know, uh, you know, how to go about, you know, uh, maybe, you know, implementing uh, some program to make it more exclu- uh, inclusive or whatever the, the kind of day-to-day decisions are. Uh, I, I understand that that in order to, to, to move and sometimes do the best we can, particularly for those who are being harmed, uh, to try to serve them, I understand agreeing to disagree in those cases has to happen. But and to my point, mm-hmm. as a long-term solution, if we're really trying to go the equity route and change systems, then we need to make sure, you know, if we're agreeing to disagree, we need to make sure that that is not defaulting to say, hey, mm-hmm. those who are in power win. Right. Right? <laughs> but, because right. that does not, that doesn't, that does not uh, point towards equity. Right. And the, the agree to disagree could be for the moment. While there's new strategy and new processes uh, being uh, worked out and then implement that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, uh, Dr. Freeman, uh, you, 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 you have a heavy lift here and and you, in in all your different roles and you handle them well, I believe. How do you manage your own, uh, back to emotions, how do you manage your emotions and your responses as you work with people and organizations around these, um, around these topics? Yeah, that's great, uh, Dr. Hardy. I, I, you know, I mean, I think, you know, and, and you know this work really well because we've been, been mm-hmm. through it together many times. Mm-hmm. We know that we know that feelings and emotions are not behaviors. Right. That, that behaviors and your feelings and emotions are two different things. What I try to do is I really try to feel all of my emotions mm-hmm. um, and, and allow those things to, to, to surface. But And what I, what I understand is I have choices around my behavior. Mm-hmm. That's why I said I can be angry, mad as I want to be, but that does not mean I'm destructive or or dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Right. I'm not. I'm not. Hey, I'm not. Hey, listen. I'm a. I'm. I'm a cool cat. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no. But but I I do believe that it's more so for me rather than managing emotions. I think it's more so feeling emotions 
uh, feeling all of myself and my mm-hmm. emotions, and then actually leaning into constructive behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So being able to make choices around what might be behaviors where I can, you know, I can express, you know, this anger or this sadness or this fear or whatever it is. And I could do it in a way that's for the edification of all of us. Mm-hmm. It, is, it, it, is, it is in a way that we're trying to for prog- towards progress um, and not to be, you know, destructive or to be harmful to anyone. So I think it's more about feeling, I, I would reframe and say feeling emotions yeah. and also choosing a positive behavior. So what does that mean? That means um, having norms to hold on to. Like, what do we practice together that can help us behave well together? Mm-hmm. That means understanding my feelings and, and tools to understand whether these feelings are coming from and using those tools. Uh, it also means, um, you know, uh, being able, uh, you know, having a commitment to being authentic and, and, and allowing these things to come out. So I think that there, there are, you know, there are tools, there are ways of being that I think help us channel uh, our emotions. There, there are assertion models and tools to actually help us express ourselves. So all of those kind of things come into play in terms of choosing behaviors, Dr. Hardy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to feel, I want to feel those emotions because I'm human and those, those uh, I've been endowed with those things as a human being to feel those things and that's what's real. Um, the counselor in me is happy to hear that, right? And, uh, and, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and one that is necessary, and, and honestly speaking, you know, and coming from a male saying that uh, is also very powerful. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Uh, so uh, the feelings are real. You need to experience them and feel them and own them. So what keeps you yes. motivated, Sterling, to, to do this work? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I, I have this thing about well springs, well springs, mm-hmm. and you know what are the things from which I draw to to continue. One of the things, Doctor Hardy, is I, um, you know, you know, I'm a reader and and, mm-hmm. and and have a lot of text in my office, and uh, every day I pull something off my shelf uh, that has been written, you know, by one of my ancestors, you know, uh, Maya Angelou. Uh, uh-huh. you know, you know, uh, uh, Tony Morrison, you know, something that's been written, James Baldwin. And I try to find not only their writings, but also their faces, pictures. And, and at least one ancestor, I look in his or her face every day. Hmm. Just, I just take some time in the morning to just look. I just want to gaze at them. I want to see uh, the struggles and the victories. I want to see this this journey etched into their facades and just be reminded that uh, were it not for them, I'm not here. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to, 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 to be on this wild and joyous ride. Uh, thinking about my parent, my parents, uh, my late father and my, my, my mother who is still with us and, and their stories, I reflect on those things. Uh, I think about just people and for me, frankly, because I'm in racial justice work explicitly, you know, I think about black and brown folks mm-hmm. and and the people who are in my community and I love and I think about the fact that this is about survival uh, at, a, at a basic level and at a hopeful level and prayerful level, it's about thriving. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that I really, I concentrate on and meditate on to keep me inspired. And then I try to just um, do other things to feel my whole self. I try to make sure I take care of body and mind and spirit and, and, you know, exercising and, and just kind of feeling my, my, my holistic self to just remind myself that I'm here in all of these different ways. And I have an opportunity in this short time, my so my short sojourn in the earth, mm-hmm. I have this opportunity to do something worthwhile. And uh, all of those things I think keep me, keep me going. I think you've you've begun to address one of the next questions I have for you uh, on that, Dr. Freeman, which is some what are the things you do to keep yourself grounded from a personal lens that so that you can continue to do the work, but also how do you grow? How do you continue to grow as a leader? Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to think that I am always um, sort of in this learning mode. One of the things, and you know this very well, Dr. Hardy, I have, because you know these two people, and Gita and Kathleen, I have Mm -hmm. incredible, powerful, powerful colleagues around me. And I think one of the things that helps me grow is the authenticity of our relationship because Mm -hmm. we can wonder together, we can challenge one another. We meet every morning uh, just about to check in. And so there's kind of an accountability there, but also uh, an openness and an authenticity for me to test things, for me to learn, to hear differently, to be challenged. And so I think just, just wanting to lean into that space constantly where uh, I know that I don't know it all. I don't know a fraction of it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, being willing to sort of to be in those kind of spaces and to be a learner. And, and I, I think yeah. those are the kind of things. And also to try to take some risk and stretch myself uh-huh. as it relates to the work that I need to do. Uh, for example, there's a piece of work that I'm getting off the ground right now with an, another black male colleague about confronting patriarchy and specifically doing that work with black men. Wow. That's a stretch and I need to do that work. So that helps me. That's going to help me grow for sure yes. as a leader. And, and should yield some something very beautiful here. <laughs> yeah, we, we're hopeful, Dr. Hardy. We're hopeful. Wow. Stay tuned. <laughs> so what advice would you give emerging leaders or veteran leaders on how to, um, to embed the DE&I work within their leadership in a very intentional kind of way? Yeah, it's great advice. Wow. I, I think... Um, I think what I would say to any leader, first of all, just from a macro perspective, when we're mm-hmm. talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work and, and trying to embed that, I think one thing is to really get clear on what the work is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, make that distinction between diversity and inclusion and equity because they're not all the same. That's for, I think that's fundamental to just really be clear on that, on those concepts, because when you think about that, you really have different, ultimately different tasks if you're going to focus on one or the other of those things. My preference would be to focus on equity, of course, mm-hmm. but yeah. I know I know people are different parts of their journey. So it's really just, just be clear. Also, to do some self-reckoning with self mm-hmm. as it relates to one's commitment to this and also as it relates to one's positionality. Are you a leader who has a lot of formal power or are you a leader who is kind of a grassroots who doesn't have a lot of formal power because that positionality does say a lot about how people can act, what their spheres of influences, influence are and so on and so forth. So do some reckoning about how you're positioned and what you're committed to. And in that commitment, do some reckoning about what you're willing to give up particularly those who are positioned as formal power leaders and who benefit from systems as they are. Mm-hmm. What are you willing What are you willing to give up? Whether that be relationships, whether that be some kind of power in your system, whether that be just how you present yourself and give up being the smartest person in the room or the, you know, or coming across as the one who has all the answers. Uh-huh. Uh, what are you willing, time, are you willing to give up some of that time and, and invest it in this work? So really, it 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 uh, it, it really um, requires, I think, getting clear on what your work is, what you understand the work to be, how you're situated in whatever the system is you're working in, and also what you're willing to get up give up in order to make the kind of change that you are professing to commit to. Uh, I think those are some things that I would, yeah. uh, would, would would have people think about. Yeah, that last one there of what things are you willing to give up? Are gonna, those are, I, each of those will be tough, but that, that last one is going to be really tough for some people who have Absolutely. lots of privilege. So thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Freeman, and again, you have different roles, but you're also the founder of the Wisdom and the Work podcast, which focuses on the topic of uh, racial justice. Talk, talk to us a bit about your podcast and, and its purpose. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Hardy, for that. Um, yeah, so the wisdom in the work really emerges out of this racial equity, racial justice work that um, I've been doing with my colleagues for these many years. And I started to think about two years ago, this has been on my mind a while, for a podcast that, um, because it would be a, a different platform to just sort of get some of the information out there, some of the messages across that we try to extend in our work. And one of those is, is that we're often in our work asked for a checklist, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, As we've talked about, there's no checklist for this work. There is no A to Z uh, linear kind of process to get this work done, but it's iterative. And so I thought that stories, more and more stories might help people as they think about what it means to do racial equity and racial justice work. And so I came up with wisdom in the work because what tends to happen in racial equity work is that the burden of the work is put on black and brown folks and white colleagues kind of show up with their ideas, their wisdom. Well, I said that what we really need to do is flip that because the way that racial inequity operates is that it actually truncates or cuts short the wisdom that black and brown folks have been holding forever because we've been on the receiving end mm-hmm. of these inequities. And it, 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 the emphasis on the work of white colleagues because often it is not seen as their work. So what we're doing in the wisdom and the work is we're turning on, we're turning that kind of dynamic on its head and we're emphasizing the wisdom of black and brown folks and we're emphasizing the work that white colleagues need to do do in this this racial justice um, journey. And so that's what it's all about. It is a platform where there's, there's always a white colleague and a colleague of color that I'm interviewing and we interview I interviewed them about this concept of the wisdom and the work and how that plays out in their relationship. Yeah, I've had the uh, the pleasure of being able to listen to um, some of your episodes, and I strongly oh, encourage thank you. yes, I encourage others to do the same. It is uh, they're interesting conversations and they're real conversations. Yes, ma'am. Thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and we feel like it's another tool, just another tool uh-huh. uh, that we can put out there that can help folks along. Yes, yes, indeed. So thank you for doing that. We uh, much appreciate it. And, and, and for flipping it on its head. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, this work is about disruption, right, Dr. Hardy? Yes, indeed. And, and this conversation does that, you, the, the Wisdom and the Work podcast. <laughs> and then I, I'm going to wrap up with um, what, okay. what's, what are you reading these days and what would you recommend to others, if anything, to engage in? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I'll tell you, I should be reading more fiction. I got to get back to some fiction, but I, I'm just kind of en- engrossed in some things. You know what? I'm in a season in my life, Hardy, and this is just my season and part of my journey because of work I'm doing. Everything I'm reading right now is by black women. Oh. Uh, so ah. so uh, Eloquent Rage by Dr. Brittany Cooper beautiful, beautiful piece, Eloquent Rage, where she talks about kind of what we've been talking about around the, the anger part. She's a, she's a brilliant scholar, PhD in sociology, I think, but I may be messing that up. Okay. But Dr. Cooper uh, has many essays in there where she's talking, talking about embracing her rage in these positive, powerful ways. Um, Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, which is a collection of essays by the great Audre Lorde, who was a a black woman, a lesbian activist, Uh uh, and talking about just lessons from her experience. Uh, A a book called Thick, T-H-I-C-K, Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotto. And she's got a bunch of beautiful essays in there about navigating the world as a black woman scholar as well. So yeah, I'm reading I'm reading a lot of stuff like that. And I will I will give you one other mm-hmm. is uh, This Little Light of Mine is a it's the, the biography of, of Fannie Lou Hamer, who is one of my uh, heroes and probably one of my um, posthumous mentors, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh-huh. I love her. Uh, and I'm reading a piece about the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. All right, sick and tired of being sick and tired. 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, so, she said that. She, yes, she did. I said, you opened up to... Said, she also said, is this America? She also oh, said Oh, yes, that that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and this is, you know, uh, March's, uh, what, our National Hist uh, Woman History Month, so it's a good time yes. to be reading all those books. And as I yes. was doing some, um, looking you up on uh, online and looking for some things about you, I saw a recent picture, I think it's a recent picture, where you have a t-shirt on this, I think it says SITE, S-I-T-E, uh, Black Women. Is that yeah, SITE, uh, C-I-T-E. C-I-T-E. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't see the C real well on yes, that yet. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes, SITE Black Women, yes, yes. yes. So, so there you are, there you go. You're citing them Abs right there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, Black women do all of this scholarship and then everybody is looked at as an expert except them. Except them. So, so true, so, so well, true. Well, I'm not telling you anything, you don't know nothing. Ooh, so true. <laughs> So you did. You mentioned that that uh, Fannie Lou Hamer is one of your posthumous uh, mentors. Who are some of your others? Yeah. So so I, I think uh, present day uh, one of my one of my um, mentors is Reverend Dr. J. Michael Sanders, who is at Fountain Baptist Church in Summit, New Jersey. Just a wonderful, courageous religious, social justice religious leader. Uh, who is just uh, just courageous? I, I just I just love him for his work. Uh, I also have, you know, to be really honest, peer mentors: uh, Kathleen and Gita. Oh yes, Kathleen Krabs and Gita Gulati Parti. Gita Gulati Parti is the principal of Open Source Leadership Strategies, and Kathleen Krabs is my partner in Counterpart Consulting. They are my peer, peer mentors. They really are. I mm -hmm. consider them mentors, and. Um, I think a, another mentor is Dr. Jim Johnson at, oh, at yeah. UNC Chapel Hill, mm -hmm. who has been my mentor for more than 20 years. I just love his uh, his uh, perseverance and his clarity yes. Uh, yes. as he does his work in the world and his courage yes. to, not just, to not just stay in the academy, but also get into the community. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those some there's some folks like that who are, who are mentors uh -huh. of mine. Yeah, I know. And and uh, Dr. Johnson is uh, from Little Falkland, North Carolina, which is That's right. uh, a little small town east of North Carolina. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, yeah, wonderful gift to this state. He is. Yes, he is, and I agree with you. He uh, he has great clarity, and he he doesn't mind sharing it openly and and uh, widely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> courageous, courageous brother. Yes, he is. And you too, my friend, are a great, courageous brother. And so I thank, thank you. you very much, Dr. Freeman, for sharing your time, your wisdom, and a lot of knowledge uh, with, our, um, with our audience today. It has been a pleasure and, and truly enlightening conversation. Well, Dr. Hardy. Dr. Hardy, thank you so much. I just want to shout you out and thank you. You have been my friend for nearly 20 years. Yes. And I want the uh, University of North Carolina system in East Carolina to know what a gift you are uh, to the system and to this state and one of our most profound and impactful leaders. Uh, and I hope folks hear that well because it is nothing but the truth. Uh, thank you. You gave me goosebumps there, Dr. Freeman. Appreciate that so very much. Truth, truth. Yes, yes, sir. Wow, Sterling. This has been so enlightening and so powerful. Thank you so very much for sharing with us. Um, you have shared, you have taught, you have enlightened, you have imparted wisdom. I don't know what else to say. I can't even begin to summarize all the different pieces that we've hit today. We've talked about privilege and oppression and what that, what impact that has on both those who are privileged and those who are marginalized. We've distinguished among diversity, equity, and inclusion and what they mean and that the basis of what we need to do is on the equity lens part of that. We've, we've talked about the intersectionality of identities and how either individual identities or collective identities, how they all play a part in leadership and what roles we play within various organizations, including our own communities. And one of the pieces you talked about was this confident humility and how important confident humility is in this leadership work. And as I hope our listeners were able to understand that to be a leader We've got to be able to see this leadership and see ourselves as it relates to diversity, inclusion, and equity. And that until we have our hands wrapped around the work and we define what that work is, 
then our leadership journey will be incomplete. And that's gonna be our challenge to our listeners is to understand the work, understand the elements and concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then, as you said, be ready to have real honest conversations about what one is willing to give up to be able to push this work along through the DE&I lens. Thank you again, Dr. Sterling Freeman, for this wonderful conversation. And thank you for joining me today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Please join me for the next episode as we continue the journey of becoming successful and effective leaders. This has been Virginia Hardy, your host of Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Thank you for joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? Or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge? Join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.